The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. If you're out there and you're still wondering what exactly it means to raise your Ebenezer, you might want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and you can read about that later on in your spare time this afternoon on the Lord's Day. You were still wondering that, weren't you? You were. I could see it. I could feel it. 1 Samuel chapter 7. You write that down and read it later. It's a great passage in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 25. We've spent these last two weeks, and now today a third week, sort of doing this little mini-series on parables, just a selection of parables. We did the last two from Matthew chapter 13, and I thought I would select one from the the latter portion of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 25, uh, because it takes us really to a different theme, a different yet related theme to the ones that we have really been looking at since the first of the year. And in some ways, this parable that we look at this morning ties together the theme that we kicked off the year looking at, our our value as a church of being a church that cares about growing in order to go and do the work of our King in the world around us. Uh, It ties that to the parable of the wheat and the tares that we looked at last week. And I'll sort of show you how these things dovetail together as we work our way through this morning. But this morning we look, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. It's called the parable of the talents. And I'll read it for you this morning. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made you two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone 
who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, not even what he has, or even what he has, will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. Into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we open up your word and consider this parable that you told, we find in the midst of the story humor. We find in the midst of the story things that make us think. And in the midst of this simple story, we find things that make us shudder to our core. To think that there is a real place where people will spend eternity. Where the only activity is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's horrifying. And yet, to think that there is a place where people can spend eternity with you. Where the potential is to hear at the end of life when we stand to give an account for ourselves before you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. To think of that possibility is exhilarating. And yet the reality for everyone in this room and everyone in this world is one or the other destiny. And so as we consider this story this morning and we consider the practical implications of it, Lord, make clear to us, each and every one, exactly which destiny we are headed for at this moment. That all might be drawn to Christ and saved. And it's for His name and glory we pray. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that the New Testament speaks to often and makes very clear to us, it's the reality that the Jesus Christ who lived, who was crucified and who was buried and raised, and who ascended back to the Father, if all of those things are true, that very same Jesus is going to return at some point in human history. The return of Jesus is one of the most anticipated events in all of human history. It is the hope of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and frankly, it will be the dread of all those who don't know Him, who've rejected Him. Throughout the New Testament, there's there's, uh, passage after passage after passage that speaks to the truth and the reality of the return of Jesus. Jesus told His disciples about it often in Matthew 24, just a chapter over, verse 30. He said this at the time, at that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. In fact, over five times in the surrounding chapters to chapter 25, Jesus speaks about the coming of the Son of Man. Both parables here at the beginning of chapter 25 are parables that surround and speak to His return, the coming of Christ. Jesus told His disciples not long before He was arrested, He said, listen, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will do what? I'll come back and I'll receive you so that where I am, you can be with me. 
after the ascension of Christ. You remember the apostles were gathered around the point of ascension and they're looking up at the sky and there's angels in the vicinity. And what do they say? They say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This, this same Jesus who's been taken from you to heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go. We flip a few pages over and we read the writings of the Apostle Paul and he speaks time and time again about the return of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 he writes, But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus. In Titus chapter 2 verse 13 he writes again, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 1 and 15, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and on and on and on. The Apostle Paul speaks to the reality that Jesus is coming back. James writes about it in James chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter speaks to it in 1 John chapter 7. John writes about the return of Christ and they all eagerly look to his return. And the whole book of Revelation, in fact, testifies to the reality that the Christ who reigns in heaven today will one day come back and finish the work that he's begun. In fact, at the end of Revelation chapter 22 verse 20, We find these words. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The second coming of Christ, His return, is one of the most widely taught doctrines in all throughout the New Testament. And as we get to Matthew chapter 25, we find ourselves really jumping sort of into the midst of some parables that speak to the reality of the return of Christ and his imminent coming. And sort of sandwiched in between uh, some, some parables that introduce this idea and then uh, uh, some, some really frightening words that talk about the judgment that's to come when Christ does return, we find this parable called the parable of the talents. There's two parables immediately preceding this. A parable that if you, have, if you have headings in your Bible in front of you, it says the parable of the ten virgins. And just before that, at the end of chapter 24, is another parable that speaks to the return of Christ. And, and both of those parables preceding this have a point. And their point is that God's people need to be ready for the return of Christ. That's the whole point of these preceding parables. That how, how should we respond or react as believers to the reality that Jesus Christ is going to come back? How should that affect our lives? How should we live in light of that reality? The way we should live is we should be ready. We should be ready. The Scriptures make clear that, that, that no one knows when Christ is going to return. No one knows. No one can tell a date, no one can tell a time, no one can tell a century, no one can tell a generation. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be sometime after I'm dead and gone in the lifetime of my son, or some grandchild after that, who knows? He's left us intentionally without that information, that we might live in a consistent state of readiness for his return. The early part of chapter 24, the parable is, is set out to remind us that we need to be ready and, and be ready because we don't know when he's going to return. He might come back sooner than we think. That's what that first parable there at the end of chapter 24 is about. 
You don't know when Christ is going to come. You, you, you can't wait until the last minute. You can't have this plan in your mind. Well, I'm going to just kind of live my life how I want to. And right before he returns, I'm going to make things right with him so that when he comes, all is well. Well, that whole parable is set out to blow up that kind of thinking and to say to you, you don't know when he's going to come. And he's going to come at a time when you don't expect. And don't think that you can live your life in such a way that there's going to be time at the last second to get things right. He might come back faster than you believe he will. And lo and behold, you'll be surprised and shut out of his kingdom. The parable of the ten virgins really kind of falls on the back side of that. And it says you need to be ready because his, his coming might be delayed. In other words, you, you, you might be ready, you need to be ready all the time. You can't ever get into a position where you say, well, you know, it's been a really long time since Jesus left. And, you know, it's probably going to be a really long time. I've probably got plenty of time. And so I'll just kind of not give too much thought to that. He hasn't come quickly enough so I'm not going to be too worried about being ready well that's a parable that reminds us that that's foolish thinking too because he might just show up and you might find yourself not ready and shut out of the kingdom so both of those parables are about being ready living with a a constant state of readiness that Christ could come at any time and we need to be ready should he come today we need to be ready should he come tomorrow we need to be ready to meet him we need to be ready to stand before him we need to be ready to give an account for our lives and how we've lived in front of him and how we've lived with what he's given us but readiness isn't the only thing that Christ is concerned about in his people he doesn't want us to just live in a, in a constant state of readiness. That's not the only application of the fact that he's coming back. In fact, if that was, then we could all just kind of you know, hang out in our PJs up on a mountain staring at the sky, saying, hey, Jesus, we're ready. Jesus doesn't want his people just hanging around passively waiting for his return. No, there's another application There's another thing that we're to do in light of the fact that we know Jesus is coming. We're to be ready. And the parable of the talents is going to tell us what that second thing is. That second thing is we're to be working. We're to be working. So if you want to know what what effect does the, the imminent return of Christ have on my life, it has this effect. There are two things that you should think about in regard to the coming of Christ. You shouldn't be caught up in trying to figure out when the time is. You should be caught up in doing two things. Making sure that at every moment of every day you're ready and making sure at every moment of every day you're at work. All about the work that he set you to do. Those are the two pieces of application. And our story today, our parable that Jesus tells... It's about that second piece. And so we're going to find an interesting story, and we're going to find that the story really kind of is uncomfortable in some ways, depending on what you've been taught about the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. It's uncomfortable because it really blows up two things that I was taught growing up. One of those things is the idea that coming into the kingdom and being a Christian is all about just making a decision. That you hear a gospel presentation and you just make a mental decision to believe certain facts. You raise your hand, you sign a card, you agree to do some religious ritual, and that's the sum total of what it means to be a Christian. And then you go about living your life however you wish from that point on. Well, that's not what the New Testament teaches about being a Christian. The New Testament teaches that in order to be a believer, 
One does have to believe the facts of the gospel. There's that mental piece that, yes, we believe, but there's also an emotional piece. We, we are drawn to the Lord Jesus by love for Him. We love the Lord. It, it affects our whole person, our mind, what we believe and what we know. It affects our affections, what we care about and what we love and how we feel. And it also affects our will. There's a volitional piece to this. We act upon what we believe and what we feel. We do something. We repent and we embrace the Lord Jesus and we follow Him with our lives. For salvation to be real, it affects the whole man. I was also taught growing up that there were three categories of people in the world. There was the one category of people that we just would call people who don't know Jesus, lost people. They don't know Jesus. They've either never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ or they've heard it and rejected it and they live for themselves and they don't believe in the Lord. They're lost. There's a second category of people I was taught, and that is people who are saved, people who are Christians, who are faithful believers, it's often called. There's other terms that I heard, but the idea was that they're faithful believers, people who believe the gospel and who've embraced the Lord Jesus and who are actively following him with their lives, submitted to his lordship. But then I was taught that there's a third category of believer that's called the carnal believer, the carnal Christian. It was this whole sort of third catch-all category of people who at some point in their lives had made some sort of a decision somewhere to believe in Jesus. They had signed a card, they had raised their hand, they had been baptized, they had gone through a church ritual, and somebody told them they were believers, and they think of themselves as believers because, in fact, as I was taught, they are. It's just that from that point on, there's been nothing distinguishable in their lives that gives evidence that they know Christ. They are indistinguishable from the world. They look exactly like the world. There's no visible love for Christ. There's no active following of Christ. There's no active serving in His kingdom. There's no actual sanctification. There's no submission to His Lordship. They just look like everyone else in the world. But I was told that there's this whole category of people who lived like that, and yet they were believers, were part of the kingdom of God. Maybe you were taught similar things. And I want to ask you, if you've taught, if, you were, if you've heard those things, or if you've believed those things, or if you've believed in this morning, I want you to think as we walk through this parable that Jesus tells, does Jesus leave in this parable any room for either of those two ways of thinking about his kingdom? Does he leave any room for that? And so with those thoughts, let's look at the story. It's actually a simple story, as all of Jesus' parables are. They're simple stories on the surface to make sense of. The story itself is simple. And here the story is simple. We're introduced to a businessman at the beginning. Again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, and to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went off on a journey. Now that's easy, isn't it? We have a businessman... He owns property, he has servants, and he wants to take a journey. It's not like journeying in our days. You know, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach, we're going to have a reception, I'm going to go to the airport, and in a few hours I'm going to be in Seattle, Washington. Because I jump on an airplane, I get in a big hollow metal tube, and fly at hundreds of miles an hour, thousands of feet up in the air, and lo and behold, by some miracle of aviation... I land in Seattle, Washington in a couple of hours. It's actually kind of frightening when you don't understand it. You just trust that the people who built it and fly it know what they're doing. 
But it wasn't that easy in these days, right? A journey would take a long time. If you were going somewhere far, you couldn't get there fast. It was a long journey, and you could be gone for a very long time. To get where you're going, to do whatever you had to do in that place, and to the journey back could be a very long time. And if you owned property, and if you had stuff to take care of, you had to leave somebody behind to take care of those things. And so this man is clearly a wealthy man, and he's going on a journey. He calls in his servants, and he distributes his wealth among them uh, to take care of it while he's gone. He calls up three of his most trusted servants. And to one of them, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two talents. And to another, he gives one talent, we're told. Now, a talent is a weight of measure. It's, it's, it's a weight of measure. It's not a coin. It's not, uh, it's not an ability. It's a weight of measure. You just think of you know, pounds or something in our day. He, he, he takes his, his wealth. He just made me think of bags of coins. Maybe silver coins would make sense in this particular story. And he takes his, his wealth and coins and, and he takes, weighs out five measures of that and he gives it to one. And he weighs out two measures and gives it to another and weighs out one measure and gives it to the other. The fact that he has three servants indicates to us that he's probably a wealthy man. He has three servants that he can trust well enough, that have been shrewd enough, that have proven themselves in his household well enough, that, he can, that he's willing to give, entrust his wealth to them and go away for a long time. Now, as we think about these servants, we shouldn't think about sort of uneducated day laborers. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about probably educated servants who have, have proven sort of their shrewd business skills in the, the management of this wealthy man's household. So instead of sort of a, a, an entry-level field worker, you might think in terms of a middle management kind of people, if you were looking for a modern-day sort of equivalent. And so he distributes his wealth amongst them. Now, why does he do this? Why does he give away his wealth to these men? Well, we're told in the story that he wants them to do something with his wealth, right? I mean, even as far back as those days, people understood that money can work, right? That money can work and earn more money. You understand that because you probably don't have all of your wealth under your mattress at home, right? If you do, get it out and put it in a bank or a money market or a savings bond or something because you store up your money in a bank and you earn interest or you invest it and you get gains on your income. And so this wealthy man is no fool. He's not interested in letting his wealth just sit idle while he's gone. He wants it to be used. He wants it to be going to work for him. He wants it to be managed and growing while he's gone. And that's fully what he expects these servants to do for him. And so he entrusts his wealth to them and says, Go take care of my money. Put it to work while I'm away. Now, clearly in this particular parable, the businessman is paralleled to the Lord Jesus, to Christ. And the talents here are, are representative, really, of sort of the wide range of, of, of things that he equips his people with. If we're thinking in terms of talents, you know, when you were born and when you were brought up in the world, Jesus didn't give you a bag of money, but he did give you something. He gave you sort of a whole mix of, of intellectual abilities. He gave you a whole mix of giftings and of uh, and over life. He's given you wealth. You've got time. You've got natural abilities. You've got spiritual gifts. You've got material things. You've got mental capacity. You've got ministry opportunities. You've got uh, intellect and all of those certain things. All of that together is a part of the talent that you've been given from the Lord. The Lord has given you and He's given me everything that we need to do the work that He's set about for us to do. That's what these talents are about in the story. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. 
our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all, our talents. So there's the parallel there. Back to the businessman. So he gives, we're told, each of these men, each of these servants, he gives them according to his ability. So it's clear that not all these servants are equal, right? Each one has differing levels of ability, and the master understands his servants, and he knows exactly which one has which abilities. And he understands each of their abilities, and he understands each of their capacity. He knows what they're capable of, and he knows what they're not capable of. He doesn't give them too little in order to encourage sort of underachievement, and he doesn't give any of them too much to overwhelm them. He gives them exactly what they need to be able to be successful at what he's called them to do. He knows his servants, and he gives them, he sets them up for success, you could say. He, he knows exactly what they can handle and stand accountable for on the backside of this thing, and he gives them exactly that. No more and no less. Because he intends on the backside to hold them accountable for what they've done with what they've been given. So how does this plan work out? Well, it goes away. And then we're told this happens. The master comes back. And he comes back and the man who had received five talents went at once and he... Well, excuse me, before he comes back, here's what happens. The man who received five talents, he goes out and he puts the money to work and he gained how many more? He gained five more. So also the one with two talents put his money to work. And how many did he gain? He gained two. So what they do? They went out and they invested the man's money. They went out and they got to work. They, they, they went out and did the work that he set them out to do. He took them what they had and they invested it. And, and the idea here, the, the, the language indicates that it's continuation. So they put the money to work and they kept on putting the money to work. The whole time the master's gone, they're about the, the business that he'd set them out to, putting his money to work and investing and reinvesting and making a profit and continuing to do so all the way until the time when he comes back. And then he comes back. And he calls them in front of him to give an account. And here's what they said. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. And he says, Master, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I gained five more. Master, you entrusted me with five and I gained five more. And the guy with two, what does he say? Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. These guys, just picture in your mind these guys sort of bubbling over with excitement. The master has returned. They're like the kid who just got uh, all A's on his report card, right? And he can't wait to get home and show it to mom and dad. Look, mom, look what I got all A's. The master comes back and these guys are, they're exuberant. They, they can't wait for him to show up because they come in front of him. Look, master, what we've done. You gave us this and look what's happened. We've earned this. And they're excited. They can't wait to show the owner what they've done. They accurately explain what they've done, and they show the results. These two people represent authentic believers. And listen to how the master responds when he comes back. What did he say? Do you remember? 
He said the same thing to both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The master comes back and he calls them to account. They give an account and the master is pleased. What's noticeable about that is the master is equally pleased with both of the first two servants. Did you catch that? He's just as pleased with the one who had two as he is with the one who had five. Was there any difference in his response to one to the other or was it exactly the same? He says exactly the same thing to both of them. He's equally pleased because they've both been faithful with what they had to do what he called them to do. And they both receive the same response from the master. And this is really an important point to the story that Jesus is telling. Because the point is, he isn't equally pleased with them because they both made him the same amount of money. They have not both made him the same amount of money. One has made for him five talents and the other has made two. That's not the point. The point is that this story isn't a competition about results. Servant number one wasn't in competition with servant number two. It wasn't about competing with somebody else. It was about being faithful with what he was given. Do you see that? They were not given equal starting points. They didn't have equal ending points. But they got equal praise from the master. Very important points. Because they were both equally faithful with what they were given. The idea is that they receive the same reward. I think that's why Jesus uses the exact same words in the master's response. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Three pieces to that. Well done. Excellent. Wonderful. Great job. You did exactly what I asked you to do. You were faithful with what I gave you. I am so proud of you. Because you've been so faithful with that, I'm going to entrust you with more than that. Come on in. Share in my happiness. They're invited into a personal, intimate access to the Master. It's like he's saying, come on into my place and tell me all about it. Come on in. Tell me about how it went. I want to hear all about it. They're invited into his home where they'll share their story and they'll laugh and they'll enjoy the company of their master. It's a picture of heaven, right? Isn't that what it's a picture of? A place where there's unhindered access to the master, where the reward is great and where the joy is complete. It's what it is. And it's what every faithful believer will hear at the end of their life those who've been faithful with what the Lord's entrusted them. Well done, good, faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful with a little. There's more to be had. Listen, I want you to catch this sort of astounding application of this simple little piece of the story. It tells us that right now, today, It doesn't matter who you are, what your level of education is, how much money you have, where you grew up, how smart you are, how educated you are, how successful you are, what level of status you've achieved in your life. If you've been faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to you, your reward will be the same 
as any other faithful servant, no matter how much they've done for the king. Another way of saying it is what you see on the screen. The common, uneducated day laborer who lives a faithful life and wins his family and neighbors to Christ gets the same praise and reward as the supremely gifted preacher who is faithful and used by God to win thousands to Christ. You see, this isn't a competition that we're in with each other or with anyone else for that matter. I'm not accountable for what the Lord has entrusted to you, and you're not accountable for what the Lord has entrusted to me. You're accountable for what the Lord has entrusted to you, and I'm accountable for what He's entrusted to me. And when we stand before Him, it's not going to be me compared to you. It's going to be the question, have I been faithful with what I've given? And it's going to be a question, have you been faithful with what you've been given? Whatever that might be. There's no difference. There's no difference. The man or the woman who lives in obscurity in some rural outback somewhere that nobody's ever heard of but is faithful in his family and is faithful in his neighborhood and is faithful in his home and is faithful in his city to, to do the ministry and the work of the kingdom that the Lord has entrusted to him will hear the same thing Billy Graham will hear when he stands before the Lord. Do you understand that? It's the same thing. It's not one versus the other. Both here, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with what you've been given. Enter into the joy of your master. What about servant number three? Well, he's a whole different story, isn't he? The man who received the one talent went off. He dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Who digs a hole in the ground and sticks their money in there? Well, actually, a lot of people did back in those days. It wasn't like banks were quite like they are today and as safe as they are and as abundant and, and available today. In fact, that was a common thing to do. If you had some wealth, you might go find a spot in your yard that only you know about and you might dig a hole and you might hide it there so that nobody else knows where it is. Back in Matthew 13, if we had kept going in Matthew 13, the next parables were actually about a parable. The next one was about a guy who's digging in a field and he digs up a buried treasure. Maybe you've read that one, the parable of the hidden treasure. That's exactly what it's talking about. Somebody had owned that field and they had hidden their treasure. They had buried it in the ground and either they died or they had gotten carted off in a war somewhere and somebody else comes along and finds it. It was common. That's what people did when they wanted to keep their wealth safe. But this, this master wasn't interested in keeping his wealth safe. He was interested in putting his money to work. But this servant goes and he digs a hole and he buries it and he goes on with his life as usual. He does absolutely nothing with the talent of wealth that was given to him. Other than to bury it and subsequently forget about it. Now maybe, we don't know what he's thinking, maybe he's subsequently, maybe he's just hoping that the others are going to lose their investment and he's going to be the only one at the end that's got something. Maybe he's planning on digging it up just before the master gets back, right? And doing a little something with it. We don't know what he was about. But what we do know is this. We knew this. He was far more concerned about his own pursuits and his own life than he was about doing what the master had set him off to do. He was more concerned about his own life and his own priorities and fulfilling his own desires than he was being faithful with what the master had set him out to do. He just chose not to be bothered by the task. 
Yeah, I know the master set me out to do these things, but I'm not bothering with that. I'll just go bury his money and I'll go on with my life as usual. He had his own agenda. He wasn't going to be bothered wasting his time making money for somebody else. So he buries it and goes about his life. Thinks nothing else of it. Until the master returns, right? Because he's called to an account. So what does he say? What do you say when you've buried it and you haven't done what the master has called you to do? What do you say when you haven't been faithful with what he's entrusted to you? Well, here's what this guy says, and it's astounding. He says, Master, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Man, that's nervy, isn't it? That's nervy. To excuse his own slackness, he blames the master. He says he's a hard man. I knew you were a hard man. He attacks his character. You're a hard and difficult person. Then he accuses him of being unjust and greedy. You're, you're the kind of guy that, 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 that just gather, you harvest where you haven't sown. I mean, the idea is that you, you're, you're just stealing stuff. And I was afraid of you. Translation is this. I, I know you're such an unreasonable jerk, and I didn't want to have to deal with you, so I just went out and buried it. The reason I squandered my opportunity, the reason I did absolutely nothing with what you gave me and what you've entrusted to me is because you're just an unreasonable jerk, and I was afraid of what you'd do to me. Don't you just love excuses, right? They're great, aren't they? Excuses are the best. Nobody's ever responsible for anything anymore, are they? Or have they ever been? It's not my fault. Parents, right? You have kids. As soon as they're old enough to blame somebody else for the stuff that they do, it is, I mean, my, my kid is 10. And like, if, if there's some dispute about what has happened that's gone wrong, one of the first things that's going to come out of his mouth, it's not my fault. Not my fault. We see it every day in the public around us, right? Just turn on what is uh, uh, just turn on anything that relates to the government. Just anything that relates to the government, to Congress, to the Senate, to the House of Representatives, to the presidency, to any of that, and, and you can watch all day long people going on TV explaining why whatever problem there is in the world is not their fault; it's somebody else's fault, right? Everything used to be Obama's fault. Now everything is Trump's fault, from the weather to whatever. If you're a Democrat, everything's the Republican's fault. And if you're a Republican, everything is the Democrat's fault. If you're a moderate, you don't know what you think anyway, so who cares? As long as it's not you, right? It's one of the other two groups. It's just not you. You're the fix. I mean, just let something go wrong in the world, and man, they scatter like, like, I mean, like roaches in the rain, right? It's an old trick. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. The first ones that get caught ran in their sin. What does Adam say to God? It's not my fault. It's this woman you gave me. God, it's your fault. 
when we really think this thing through, I'm not really responsible here. You're the one who gave me this gal, and she's the one who ate. I'm off the hook here, man. At the end of the day, God, it's your fault. It's the same thing here, right? Master, it's your fault. I didn't do anything with it. You're a hard man. You're an unreasonable jerk. So who's represented here by this guy, by this third servant? It seems to me that this third servant represents people who attach themselves to the, to the kingdom of God, but who really aren't ones who belong to it. People who are false professors of Christ, if you will. People who attach themselves to Christianity for various reasons, but have never truly been saved. People who go along with the program, who sort of blend in, maybe if you will, the, 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 uh, the tears, if you will, from our parable last week. Those who kind of blend into the scene and, and look like the real deal from the surface. But when you dig below the surface, you find out there's no reality to what's going on. They pretend loyalty to Christ, but they squander their spiritual opportunities to decline to serve the Lord. They serve themselves instead. They may go to church. They may be outwardly moral. They may be religious. They may read their Bibles. They may know Christian lingo. They may have gone through some religious ritual, but they've never truly repented of their sin, rejected themselves, and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never died to themselves and fallen in love with the Lord Jesus. They've never committed their hearts and their lives to the Master. They're attached to his group, but they're really still all about themselves. And it all shows up in their actions, right? They bury their talents. And the point is this, to have done nothing is proof that they don't love Jesus, don't belong to him, and have no share in his kingdom. How does Jesus respond to this? He says, well... He's the master in the story. And the master says, you wicked, lazy servant. You wicked and lazy servant. The master immediately reveals the problem. The problem isn't that the master is an unreasonable jerk. The problem is the servant is wicked and lazy and selfish. He chose to ignore his duty and behave as if he was not accountable to the master. And lo and behold, he's standing in front of the master. And he hears his judgment. I mean, he, un- he, un- he uncorks the whole lie, right? He says, oh, okay, you knew I, I harvest where, I- where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered. Well, if that's the case, if that's truly what your excuse is, then why didn't you at least put the money in the bank? If you put it in the bank, you could have at least gotten interest. No, that's not really what your interest was at all. You weren't afraid of me. You didn't hide the money because you're afraid. You hid the money because it got in the way of your selfish lifestyle. You didn't want to be put out by doing what I called you to do. You wanted to go about your own life and do it your own way. So he says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. And throw that worthless servant outside. Into the darkness. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty harsh. You'd think he'd get some credit at least for giving him back his talent. Nope. The wicked and lazy servant is a worthless servant who's cast into outer darkness. 
It's a vivid picture of hell. It's a frightening end, actually, to the story. Because there's really only two categories of people in the story. At least two categories of servants. There's servants one and two, and there's servant number three. So what's the significance of all of this? Let me just give you a few sort of thoughts to hang the story on that I think will be quite obvious and I don't need to comment too much on them. The first is simply this. Our actions either verify or deny our claims to Christ. Our actions either verify or deny our claims to Christ. That's the point in the story, right? At the end of the day, the two servants said, here's what I've done with what you gave me. And they heard, well done. At the end of the day, servant number three said, here's what I've done with what you gave me. Nothing. And he heard, you worthless servant. And the reality is, at the end of life, you and I will all stand before the Lord, every human being who's ever lived will. And we'll give an account for what we've done with what we've been given. You will give an account for what you've been given. For whatever, ta- whatever, whatever sort of mix of talent, whatever mix of the Lord's wealth, if you will, that He's given you, whatever mixture of, of intellect and talents and abilities and skills and education and opportunity that He's given you, you're going to stand accountable from Him for what you've done with that. Because He gave it to you in order for you to put it to work for Him. So that when He returns, you can show Him what you've done with what He gave you. The same will be true of me. And our actions will speak to the reality of our commitment and love to Him and for Him. So the danger is, if you're here this morning and you have attached yourself to the body of Christ in some way, but the actions of your life look more like the actions of servant number three, you should really take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask the question, if if the Master returned today, would I be more likely to hear what servants one and two heard or servant three? Second thing, everything we have has been entrusted to us by God. You notice that in the story where everybody's a servant, we're stewards, not owners. The Lord is the one who owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? Everything belongs to Him. He entrusts to us pieces of His fortune and calls us to put it to use for His purposes. Whatever it is that you have doesn't belong to you. It didn't come from you. You don't own it. You've been entrusted with it. You're a steward of it, and you're expected to use it for the glory of His name and the spread of His renown in the world. That goes for your intellect. That goes for your wealth. That goes for your position in the world around you. That goes for your status. That goes for everything that's a part of what makes you you. Whenever we begin to think that what we have belongs to us and that somehow we've gotten it because of who we are, then we're way out of bounds. And we start getting attached to the stuff instead of to the Master. The third thing is this. Not all believers have been given the same talents. I I wish we could do a whole sermon just on this piece right here, really. I'm just surprised by how often I navigate the body of Christ and, and how much believers live in competition with each other. Oh, that person's a great singer and I'm not a good singer. I don't sing as well as they do. 
Oh, that person's a great teacher. I don't teach as well as they do. Or that person's so smart, I'm not nearly as smart as they are. I, I could never be useful in the kingdom of God. And people live in frustration and discouragement because they're constantly comparing themselves to somebody else. Thinking they don't have anything to offer the master because they're not the other guy or the other gal. And the reality is, the point is, no, you're not the other guy and you're not the other gal. And you're not supposed to be the other guy or the other gal. And you're not going to be accountable for being the other guy or the other gal. God's made you you and he's entrusted you with what he's entrusted you with. And you're going to be accountable for what you have, not for what you don't have. And not for what someone else has. You say, well, I don't have very much. I'm not very smart and... I'm not very wealthy, and I don't have this, and I don't have that. Great. Forget about what you don't have. What do you have? And how can you leverage that for the work of His kingdom, wherever you are? Because that's all that's expected of you. What's expected of me is to do what I'm doing right this very second. It's a part of it. But it's not what God expects of you. He's entrusted you with something other than what he's entrusted me with. And no matter how little or how large that is, at the end of the day, if you've been faithful with, with, with what you've been entrusted, you hear the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Quit comparing yourself to somebody. You know what? Comparing yourself to other people will do one of two things, and neither one of them is good. If you compare yourself to other people and you consider the, the, the comparison favorable, it will lead you to pride, which is sinful and wrong. If you compare yourself to other people and the comparison is unfavorable, it will lead you to discouragement, which is not helpful either. How about we just say, Lord, this is what you've given me. This is what I'm entrusted with. This is what I'm accountable for. You haven't given me any more than what I can handle. You've given me exactly what I can be successful in. So I'm going to set out to use what I've got for your work. And I'm going to joyfully stand before you and show you at the end of my life, here's what I've done with what you've given me. We'll each be held accountable for what we do with the talents God gives us. That's it. Well, there's one last thing. Heaven will not be boring. I want you to just say that with me. Heaven will not be boring. The Master said, enter into the joy of your Master. Heaven is a place with unimpeded access to the Master. Unspeakable joy. Unspeakable riches. All that belongs to the Master belongs to us. And we with Him forever. I'll finish with Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you think heaven is floating around on clouds like a little baby with a bow and arrow or something in a diaper, you're crazy. Heaven is a place of unimaginable beauty and unimaginable joy. The sweetest of the joys we experience here don't even begin to touch the edge of what the everyday, every moment experience of being with the Master in His place is like. And the way to enter it is to truly belong to the Master.
And the way to truly belong to Him is to repent of your sin and believe He is who He said He is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's come to save you, to die in your place. It's to believe that with your mind. It is to embrace Him with your heart, to love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's to choose to follow Him with your will. It's to choose to abandon yourself and follow hard after Him. I hope that's the reality of your life. And if that's you, you set out about the work of using the talents He's given you for the work of His kingdom. Don't look at anybody else. Look to Him. And you'll hear from Him, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what you want, isn't it? Uh, But if you're here this morning and your life looks more like servant number three, then you need to understand you're in grave, grave danger. And it would be good for you as we bow our heads and close our eyes to think about your life and to be honest with yourself and ask the question, do I really know the Master? Do I really love the Master? Do I really serve the Master? Or am I just a fake and a fraud and a pretender? who's really buried what the Lord has given me in the yard and set out about pursuing life as I want it to please myself. Just given the outward appearance of belonging to the body of Christ, but in reality, still the captain of my own ship, doing whatever I want, living for my own pleasure. That's you this morning. You need to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus. You need to ask Him to forgive you You need to ask Him to invade your life, to draw you to Himself, that you might turn from your sin and embrace Him and love Him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray for that together. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for our time together this morning. We're grateful for this parable that You've given us, stories that are practical, that make sense, but stories that are piercing and hard, hard to wrestle with. I pray for my friends that are in the room, Lord. I pray that everyone in this room is a a faithful servant, like one and two, that they are about the work that you've given them. Encourage them, Lord. Encourage them. If somebody's here today and and they're discouraged because they've been comparing to somebody else and they think they don't measure up, Lord, turn their eyes toward you. Help them to see the foolishness of even looking and comparing. Remind them that the only one they need to please is you, and the only thing they're accountable for is what you've given them. Help them to serve you with what they've got, with all their heart. That they might look forward to seeing you with eyes sparkling and show you what they've done with what they've been given. But for those who are in danger, Lord, open their eyes to the reality and draw them to yourself. For your sake alone, we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you would like someone to talk to you, to pray with you, to tell you what it means to be a Christian. As we stand right now to sing this last song, you can slip out of your seat and come to the back. I'm here in the back of the room. There are others who would be more than thrilled to pray with you, answer questions, or serve you anyway. As we sing this closing song, you come.